Welcome, scribes, storytellers, and story seekers of all forms. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And today we're talking with Farah Ali, who has just published a wonderful short story collection, People Want to Live. And we haven't featured too many short story collections on Right Minded. I think that's in part because fewer short story collections get published, and the ones that do don't get the fanfare that novels and memoirs do. Uh, Short story collections are often viewed as a sort of unwanted stepchild of the publishing world because they don't tend to sell many copies, so they often find a home with smaller presses. You know, you don't see Oprah or Reese Witherspoon feature short story collections, for example, and and authors are are sometimes essentially told to learn how to write by writing short stories and then to become a real writer by by writing a novel. In fact, I, I just read Charles McGrath, the former editor of the New York Times Book Review, once compared short story writers to people who learn golf by never venturing onto a golf course, but instead practicing at a driving range. Uh, I can't believe he said that. I really can't. Um, That just seems so misguided. Uh, The real game being, by this analogy, the novel. And I don't like any of that, of course. And and when I read Fair as People Want to Live, I thought about the very unique and interesting textures and the multitude of perspectives one gets from a story collection that's different from a novel. Because a novel, you know, they tend to follow a single main character or a few related characters. But a short story collection might include all sorts of stories from many different perspectives. And and this was particularly striking with People Want to Live, which includes 14 stories, all of which are set in Pakistan. And since short story collections don't get a lot of fanfare, Brooke, I was wondering if you could tell me a favorite short story collection or two of yours and why you like it, especially if it provides an interesting reading experience to contrast a novel or memoir reading experience. Yeah, I mean, by far my favorite collection of last year was Disha Filia's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which I've mentioned a few times on this show since she's been on. And I think what I loved about it so much was exactly what you're talking about here, the many textures and layers and the different styles and points of view and her deep observations of these inner lives, sometimes scandalously so. (laughs) Uh, You know, these church ladies, many of whom were putting on quite the proper front and then had all this other stuff going on um, under the surface. And so in that way, the collection was also really subversive. And I always loved that. Um, and then I also want to mention Lydia Yuknovich, who was also on the show. I mean, her collection of stories, Verge, was also brilliant and quirky. And she has outrageous characters. You know, Lydia truly thinks and writes outside the box. And I think the very title suggests that, you know, Verge is so named because her characters are on the verge. And Grant, I also want to give a shout out to your book, All of the Comfort Sin Can Provide. Oh, thank you, Brooke. Yeah, which I also loved. And you'll remember that I read it on my birthday weekend last year and when I went out of town to Guerneville and it struck, you know, just a good and solemn mood for me. Um, I, I just particularly love that you played with form and the story's length and style very as much as they do. And to me, that is what's cool actually about short story collections. They're a bit like changing gears, like shifting from fourth to second, back to fifth. You know, it's a it's a very different kind of reading experience. And I would argue one that forces readers to be a bit more rigorous. And how about you, Grant? I mean, you must have a pretty stunning list of recommended collections since you're more widely read in this space than I am. Yeah, I think they they do force um, writers and readers to be more rigorous because it's such a contained little form. And 
I could uh, list many. Uh, I've got I've got three here, um, and and one is Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson, and I think this is maybe the most uh, imitated collection of short stories. I, I I don't know that for certain, but it's so many writers uh, have gone through a phase of imitating Dennis Johnson, including me, and I have been totally without success. He's he's un, you know he's one of those writers you just can't truly imitate. And if you don't know the collection, it's made up of 11 of these menacing, funny, tender, and hallucinatory stories that are sort of loosely linked together through this one drifter character who we only know by his nickname, Fuckhead. And he he kind of staggers aimlessly through abortions and car crashes and drug deals and murder, you know, finding himself finally in the first you know stages of a highly tentative recovery at the end. And it's a book, you know, as I said, it's hard to describe, and it it kind of has to be experienced because Dennis Johnson finds these really strange and interesting ways to lace odd bursts of poetry into the story um, in the oddest off kilter way, and that's what makes him. You just can't imitate that. Uh, and then the two others I want to mention because they're favorites of mine, but but also I've heard Farah Ali, our guest today, mention them. And one is Grace Paley's enormous changes at the last minute. And I mention that because of the way she captures this huge city of New York and, and tiny stories that speak with all sorts of voices. And it reminded me of Farah's book. You know, you feel the vast variety of voices of the city at the same time you get the individual voice of a junkie or a single mother. And and Farrah mentioned that she found a lot of inspiration in this story, Friends, by Grace Paley, which, you know, is is kind of the perfect short story structure. It's about three women friends who take this five hour train trip to to visit a friend on her deathbed. So it's it's all about them talking and reminiscing, and that's for me kind of the the, the opportunity of a short story because it's in this contained space where there isn't necessarily drama happening, but there is a kind of more subtle and conscious drama. And then Alice Monroe's Runaway, who I mentioned because she's a short story writer, and, and we talk about this with Farah a bit, who she never wrote a novel. Farah said she tried a novel once and said she'd never write one again. Uh, but what I find intriguing about her is that all of her stories, to me, they read very novelistically. They have this... Uh, you know, this real, real depth to them. And, and, and some of them are very long and her stories and characters, are, you know, they're all familiar too, from book to book. Um, they're sometimes they, they even seem repetitive, but they're, they're never the same. And I found this quote that uh, Alice Monroe mentioned about writing short stories. She said, the complexity of things, the things within things just seems to be endless. And I, I think that that captures the short story writers and readers experience. You're going to the things within things and capturing that, which makes uh, short stories just kind of different, I think, than novels. And, you know, Brooke, I was thinking about short story collections and how they're different than novels. And I started to wonder if the memoir genre has its own equivalent. Do you know of memoirs that are constructed in a similar way? That is as a, you know, a series of personal essays or a type of short stories that essentially add up to a memoir? Yes, and they're actually called memoirs and essays. Uh, and it's commonly known, just like you were talking about earlier, um, that they're difficult to sell. And I think that's based on competitive titles, which is how the industry thinks about what sells and what doesn't. And collections of essays, I guess, historically haven't done well. But of course, there are always exceptions. And there are very famous memoirs and essays, including Pam Houston's Cowboys Are My Weakness, uh, Joanne Beard's The Boys of My Youth. I'm also thinking about Marion Winnick, who has written multiple memoirs and essays, probably most famously First Comes Love, uh, and Michelle T., who we had on the show, who's written memoirs and essays as well. So they're also not uncommon. 
But I was thinking too that in the realm of nonfiction, collections of essays that um, are that tend to sell better or that people tend to know more about are usually not explicitly packaged as memoirs, but are usually collections of humor or collections of inspirational pieces or political pieces. So for humor, think David Sedaris um, or Samantha Irby. Uh, for inspiration, Annie Lamott has written books of essays. Glennon Doyle's Untamed is really a book of essays, even though it was packaged as a memoir. And then in the political thought piece landscape, I mean, there are just so many, but to name a few, um, Rebecca Solnit, Zadie Smith, Joan Didion, George Sanders. And then we keep talking about Kiese Lehman on this show, but I think for good reason. Um, you know, back in December, Grant, you mentioned how you'd heard that Kiese had taken back the rights to his book, uh, which also was a collection called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, because of his dissatisfaction with the way in which he was edited and directed, that the editor stripped his voice. And um, and and so I just wanted to recommend that one, that people buy the new version that Kiese wants out in the world. Uh, so again, that one, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, which is a collection of essays. So there you go. Yeah, it's interesting because I read uh, recently Liz Fair's memoir, Horror Stories. I mean, it was sold as a memoir, uh, but but it's really a collection of essays. Each of them could stand alone, and, and you don't get the sense that they're even truly meant to link to the next essay in the collection, although they are organized chronologically. But they, they really do read like a collection of short stories. That's what I was thinking of as I as I read it. And, you know, I, I was thinking, like, she could have written a conventional memoir. She could have formed the memoir around the trajectory of her career, you know. But she really formed the story more around her experience of, of just being human. And I think by writing her, her memoir as individual essays, it allowed for that in a way that a, that a conventional memoir wouldn't have. And the reason I'm intrigued by the ways stories offer different views into life is that I'm thinking of a comment uh, that Farah made that most people think of Pakistan as dusty, somewhere in the middle of the Middle East, broken up, oppressive, terrorist. And when I read that, I thought of how little I know about Pakistan, both just in terms of facts about the country, although I knew it wasn't in the Middle East, uh, but especially in terms of the people and who they are and how they live. And this collection allowed me to do what Hannah Arendt said, to train one's imagination to go visiting. So this collection allowed me not to just be a literary tourist to Pakistan, but to make an active, imaginative effort to travel outside of my circumstances and feel part of these characters' lives. It's the essential purpose of stories, I think, to go visiting in this way. And it's not that a novel couldn't allow me to visit Pakistan in a deep and meaningful way, but that I, but I felt... I experienced a wider variety of textures through these short stories. And that's a value for short story collections in general. They are perspectivist by definition. Yeah. And, and there's that word again, textures. Uh, I love that. And, and Pakistan is one of those places on the planet that not a whole lot of travelers are clamoring to get to. I, I actually feel lucky because I went to Pakistan for five weeks when I was 20 years old because one of my best childhood friends is Pakistani. Um, so I got to go with her family and have this very immersive experience. And so I particularly enjoyed Farah's stories. You know, I think it's such an important thing to read pieces that give you a win into a place in a culture that's rich and complex, but also incredibly misunderstood by the West. Uh, and, and that's another reason to read works by foreign writers, by immigrant writers, because you get the true stories that are mixed, you know, their love of place, they can be the frustration with place, which, you know, no matter where you're from, you feel those things. 
And um, so, yeah, just echoing that and that I'm so pleased to have Farah on the show with us to talk about her writing and what draws her to the page and more on this topic of the short story in all of its glory. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Farah Ali, whose work uh, won the 2020 Pushcart Prize and received special mention in the 2018 Pushcart Anthology. Her more recent stories can be found in Shenandoah, the Arkansas International, the Southern Review, and the Kenyan Review online. And her debut short story collection, People Want to Live, has just been published by McSweeney's. Welcome, Farah. Hi, thank you. Absolutely. It's a treat to have you today. And I'm always interested in the ways people become writers. I read that you realized you had stories that you couldn't hush in your head when you were you were as young as six or seven. Yeah. And then your seventh grade English teacher wrote, send me your first book at the end of an assignment. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could tell us about your journey as a writer from those initial stories to publishing this debut collection. Yeah. Um, it's, it sounds cliche, but I think I was writing stuff in my head and in my journals from when I was very, very small. I like I wrote a paper book and drew an illustration about cats. This one was a really small kid. And, uh, and then all the way in grade seven, that's when my English teacher wrote that at the, at the back of an assignment, send me your first book. Mm-hmm. So I think I've always wanted to write down all the sentences and paragraphs and character observations that keep accumulating in my head and making stories about them. I'm just curious, um, because that's that's such a wonderful thing to have um, an English teacher write at that age. And I think it's so, it would have been so influential to me, almost as if I was hearing a calling. And and so did you just really visualize yourself as a writer then? Did you always see yourself as a writer or did you, you know, go take other paths uh, from there? No, I think no matter what whatever else I did before I had a book out, the writer state, you know, capital W writer was always in my head and parallel to anything else. Like when I was for a very long time, I knew I was going to be a writer, not knowing what that meant. But then I got my master's in business administration, <laughs> a very, very far move from literature or English or writing. Um, and, and I tried to, you know, I worked in that area for a while, but it was, it was soul crushing for me. I, I didn't enjoy it. And I think I was always writing something or the other on the side. And I think about seven years ago, um, is when I said, okay, enough being wishy-washy about it. I'm just going to see what I can do with this whole book business. Uh, and I started reading short stories to consciously see what it is about those that work and those that to me didn't work because you know when you want to write a book you think of the novel not a bunch of short stories at least i didn't and so i was i i took an a ucla extension class before like i think 9 years ago or something like that and that was the best 12 weeks ever and that was when i first completed an actual short story but i still took my time writing more fiction in a short format. And when I started writing the stories, it wasn't with a collection in mind. It was just that for so many years, I had not allowed myself to finish something. When I did, it just came rushing out 
I sometimes was writing stories and then pausing and then starting another story. And later on, I thought maybe this is a collection. And when I showed it to a few agents and editors, I mean, they said no, but sometimes the no was encouraging. So I thought, okay, there's something here. It's not just in my head. Hmm. Something to be said for those encouraging no's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, people want to live is such a striking title. It's it's blunt and direct on the one hand, but it's also subtle because it invites this question of why people might be unable to live and why living is an effort or why living even needs such a statement. And these stories all take place in Pakistan, which I think is very crucial for our listeners to understand. And certainly that drives so much of your narrative and, and your understanding as originally being from Karachi. So could you tell us about the title and how it organizes the story in your collection? So the title came way later. All titles of my stories usually come way later. And it was the same for the collection. It's I think after I was trying to make a cohesive uh, lineup of the stories that I've written, I, unconnected to what I was doing, I read an article some time ago, a long time ago, and it was an actually it was actually an interview of people who work on suicide hotlines and all the people interviewed generally said that people want to live and when i looked at my stories i thought okay these characters maybe are not aware of how far from the edge they are but they persevere in i mean persevere is a wrong word i think cuz they're not really optimistic people they're just more oblivious to their endings or oblivious to how far from the edge they are, but they they want to keep making plans for the future, uh, jobs or relationships or moving away, whatever. And so it was symptomatic. All these things they were doing, it was symptomatic of them wanting to live, of them wanting to keep on proving their need to be in the world, no matter what happened around them. And to your first. A question about Karachi. Yeah, they're all based out of there, or at least they are in my head. Uh, I didn't consciously name the city, I don't think, in a lot of places, but because I grew up there, I did all my impressionable firsts there and, you know, work there and everything. The the place is, it's called like a beta global city. Uh, it's huge. It's got, I think, almost 15 million people. And it's, Everyone comes there from all over Pakistan to work, to look for work. And it's it's a bit of an assault on the senses. So growing up, storing all those observations and feelings, it came out in some shape or format in some stories. Well, Farah, yeah, on that note, I, I, th I think about the wider purposes of fiction a lot. And I'm, I'm intrigued by the way it can literally take us into other lands and to see through the eyes of other people, which is so important for us at this moment in history, I think. And when you were asked in another interview how you thought Pakistan was viewed by other countries, you said it tends to be seen in reductive and inaccurate terms as dusty, somewhere in the Middle East, broken up, oppressive, terrorist. So I was curious, and I, th I think you're right. That's the way I, I'm guessing a lot of people who I interact with every day, would how they would respond if I asked them what they thought of Pakistan. So I'm, I'm curious if you wanted to intentionally change this notion with your stories, and if so, how did you think about creating a counter-narrative? Oh, that's a good question. But the short answer is that when I was writing the stories, I had no intention of how 
my country or my city would be perceived by people. I just wrote literally from the story. The story excited me. The idea of representing my place by these stories is such a, I, th- I thought it, I mean, I thought about that later when I was asked, do I worry about what people will think about Pakistan if they read some of this? And I said, no, <laughs> because I don't want to avoid quote unquote tropes for the sake of sounding different or making my place look different from how it actually is. I just wanted to write the story. So I wasn't setting out to change the perception of my country. All the places that are mentioned, all the different economic classes or all the living conditions in the stories, you know, they they take over a range of situations from people struggling to find a stable living to people who have a stable living and struggling with a relationship. So I think that's generally life in any part of the world. It's specifically touched by things that are specific to my country, definitely. But if somebody reads them and says, oh, okay, you know, she's exactly saying what what I thought about the country, then I'll say, okay, you need to read a bit more maybe. (laughs) But I wasn't setting out to debunk any myths or make it sound like a fabulous place because it's it's a place I grew up in. It's It's been great and it's been horrible at the same time. Like I think generally other places could be too. I appreciate that a lot, uh, Farah. I actually traveled to Pakistan when I was in my 20s because I have oh, a, so cool. <laughs> yeah, a very <laughs> close friend who's Pakistani. And so I was there for five weeks and wow. I, I liked your stories so much because I think it's obviously not the kind of place that like armchair travelers necessarily think about going. And yet what I was thinking as I was reading some of your stories is how critically important it is that we not be reductive, you know, that we not think like we have some sense of what an entire country is based on zero understanding, you know, so I I really appreciate your collection. And in my mind, there was a sense of more and more voices, immigrant voices, voices of color, you know, in this moment, in these particularly turbulent times here in the States, being heard in new ways. And I wondered if you had that sentiment yourself, you know, if when you were looking for a publisher, and especially because you landed with McSweeney's, which is kind of a a celebrated press and certainly progressive, um, you know, did you have a sense that McSweeney's and and beyond were ready to receive your stories in a new way. Yeah, I I had no idea where I would obviously no one really knows where they would end up being published. But you know, I when I made my collection when I had a collection and I started submitting it, I did not understand much about because I haven't lived I mean I lived in the US for a very short time recently, but I haven't lived there long enough or or written there or interacted with people in the publishing industry there long enough to get a truer feel of how tricky it can be to get published as a person from Pakistan and maybe a certain kind of story is expected. So anyway, I was just submitting. But I think I cannot say categorically why I got the no's that I did earlier because it's a collection and there is that part of the publishing as well. Everybody wants a novel, not a collection. And then secondly, it also did not define the place in an easy marketable way. It didn't say, aha, terrorism or 
you know, life just sucks there. <laughs> it was, it was, I don't know, whatever made people say no when they did it. Um, but when McSweeney's accepted it, it just felt fantastic. Uh, and not surprising that they accepted it, looking at the things they have published. So yeah, like you said, they are definitely progressive. And I think it helps to be with a publisher who does not have to work so hard to understand your stories because then it goes down to the editing. It goes down to everything that the book is looked at by the publisher. You don't want your object to be, you don't want to sell them too hard on what the, you want them to be convinced about, you know? So yeah, it was, it was great being with McSweeney's for this whole process. I bet they're a great publisher. And I recently came out with a collection of short stories with a small press as well. And I was asked in an interview like this, if there was any story that was particularly challenging to write the ending of. Right. And it was interesting to me because there was one story I wrote many endings for over the course of literally years. And the interviewer ended up saying that that was her favorite story, but I'm still not sure if I got the ending right. Um, I guess my moment of enlightenment during this conversation was that often the story that is the toughest does end up being the best. So I wondered if there's a story in this collection that was sort of a problem child for you or just challenging in an interesting way. And if so, what did you learn from it? That's, that's a good question. Endings are really hard for me. Uh, sometimes editor, you know, an editor will push me to making a choice and I realize that I'm avoiding <laughs> what the person in the story is supposed to do by a bit of a cop out. But then I think the hardest ending was the story called Believers where there's, there's a truck driver. He's a, you know, a kid almost, a very, very young adult. And the ending of that story is something that I would probably rework many different ways, even now, because I still don't know if this is what he would have done. But I remember the editor when the when the when the story was picked up by Shenandoah, Beth Staples. She's amazing, and she stayed with me till pushing me till I actually made a choice about what he is supposed to do in that final scene. And I was saying I don't want him to do that. She said, is it because you don't want him to do that or because the person in the story doesn't want to do it? There's a difference. So mm. <laughs> but that was hard as an ending. But generally endings are, I find them hard. I mean, I've been told that the story is fine, but the ending doesn't land. Hmm. And sometimes you can, like you said, you can work on something for so long. It still doesn't feel perfect. Well, thank goodness for good editors, but it also raises some interesting questions about the choices that we make for our characters and how much we really see them as people um, out there making decisions and having things happen to them. Uh, and on that note, Farah, I was curious about some of the structural experiments that your stories engage. And so, for example, one of the stories, Foreigners, takes the shape of a visa application interview. And I was curious how you think about story structure and what do you gain with a structure that's unconventional like that? I think I experimented with two stories like that, which are in some hybrid first person, second person form. There's foreigners and there's tourism. Generally, the idea of what point of view, it just comes from the character itself, the main person in the story, you know, how close I want to be looking out through their eyeballs. <laughs> and for, for foreigners, which takes place in a consulate, 
it was one of those stories that did not take so long to write. And the idea came from a simple thought, you know, like when I go apply for visas, I have to go for the, with a lot of paperwork to prove all sorts of things, especially that I am going to come back to wherever I'm residing. I'm not going to stay where I'm traveling to. And But it seems like the person interviewing me knows so much, knows everything, almost like they're omniscient. It was, it's a disconcerting imbalance of power when you're behind that glass or plastic being interviewed. You cannot say anything that could come across as rude or whatever that might make them say, okay, no visa for you. So the idea of this person who knows everything, but whose own life is kind of unraveling, that's what made me just choose the format for foreigners that way. Like he's just talking to this couple and, you know, you don't hear from them directly. Well, Farah, short story writers are unfortunately always expected to write a novel next, it seems. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, I'm curious if that's next for you or if you're a short story writer at heart <laughs> or both. Yeah. So I did because everything took longer than I had expected it to with the book. Uh, before it got to McSweeney's, I had started working on a novel. It's a short novel. So I did that. But when I finished it, oh, while, while I was writing it, I kept thinking how Alice Munro tried one novel, which ended up being a linked collection of some sort. And hmm. she said, my God, never again am I writing a novel. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know, after having attempted a novel, if I'm going to say, my God, never again. If I ever continue with another novel or whatever, it's going to be so short. I mean, some people might just say, it's a really, really long, short story. <laughs> you know, we don't know what box to put it in. That's so interesting about Alice Monroe because I always refer to her as one of the few writers who never published a novel. Yep. Um, so I didn't know that she attempted one. And, and for me, her stories, her short stories are very novelistic and some of them are very long. Yeah. So I was always interested that she didn't write a novel. You know, and you're right. Her stories are have so much heft in them, like entire lifetimes in them. Uh-huh. You can do a lot with that. Well, we will look forward to the next from you, Farah. So thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much, Farah. Thank you very much for having me. This was fantastic. We'll be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend is books trending on TikTok and more specifically on BookTok. You know, just since last year in 2021, BookTok took off in a way that's pretty similar to the influence of Bookstagram on Instagram. And what I found compelling, Brooke, is that BookTok influencers aren't just paying attention to new releases. They're creating sales for backlist books, too. You know, skyrocketing sales in books that have been out for two, three or more years, which doesn't tend to happen. Yeah. And even better than that, they're actually launching some authors' careers, which shows the power that influencers on these social channels have to influence what people buy and what people read. Yeah. I actually just talked to a 14-year-old girl who said she finds out about nearly every book she reads from BookTok and she loves it. So it's great for discoverability. I'm curious what you make of these trends, you know, just social media spaces being ones where so much of the discoverability is happening and where people are sharing what they're reading. And really, if you think about it, hand-selling books. I mean, a newspaper's book review section seems quite antiquated and maybe a little bit irrelevant at this point. 
I know, which makes me a little bit sad. And on the other hand, I'm totally in awe of these spaces, Bookstagram and BookTok in particular. It's exciting and inspiring to me on the one hand. And then it's also on a personal level, very overwhelming because it's this yet another social media space that we should be on. And, you know, I'll say to my authors, yeah, be in that space, um, get out there. But it is such a time suck, you know, so I, I struggle with this. We've talked about this before, you know, the push pull. One of my goals of this year in 2022 is to try to get myself into more relevant social media spaces, but I'm just starting with Bookstagram. <laughs> and so we'll see with BookTok, but I know it's the current wave and it's a uniquely book centric wave that I want to be writing, but I've been reluctant to paddle out. Yeah, I'm with you. My challenge is that creating posts for TikTok is more time consuming. And it's obviously to me a young person's platform right now. So I'm not even sure if there's a true space for me there. But maybe I'm just ignorant. And in the end, I just, I also just don't feel like I've got the time for another platform like you. Um, you know, my kids are on TikTok, of course. Uh, so I experience it mostly through them, uh, but they just watch, they don't post. And that's my level of engagement as well. It's entertainment to me. Yeah, you know, and trends shift and social media moves so fast. Um, but like I said, as of 2022, I'm upping my presence on Instagram. So I do feel like I'm historically a few years late to the party. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to change that a little bit. And maybe I could embrace the TikTok trend a little more wholeheartedly, especially now that they're moving explicitly into the realm of books. Yeah, these trends. I mean, this this is amazing for book sales. And I know... We share the same ethos there, Brooke. The more regular people and influencers are helping other people to buy books and read better. And I love that this backlist is getting some love, you know, like bring back the backlist. There are um, <laughs> literally thousands of books that are really great that we should be reading. Yeah. Hashtag bring back the backlist is awesome. And this is a cultural trend. There's just no denying it. Um, you know, I love that books are so beloved and cool with the younger generation for obvious reasons. So, you know, go book talk, go explore it. And uh, on that note, you can explore us because we also have a backlist. Uh, our backlist consists of three and a half years and some 180 episodes of Right Minded, which you can go and listen to wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening now. Uh, and thank you for being a listener. Happy New Year, everybody. We're excited to be putting 2021 behind us. Uh, let's see if 2022 treats us a little kinder. And right on. We will be back in your feed next week. 